0: We all know the scripture in Matthew twelve forty of how Jesus said to the Pharisees, no sign was to be given to a wicked and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah the prophet, and that the only perennial or perpetual sign that proves Jesus Christ is the Messiah that would endure down through history is the sign involving the length of time he was in the tomb, which means the moment of his death and the moment of his resurrection. Jesus said he would be exactly three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And of course, he that confesseth not that Christ is come in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. For decades of my life, I have tried to show the audiences that I have spoken to on radio and television although it takes oftentimes weeks and months of teaching and sometimes years of subtle repetition and inference, and once in a while you can bring them to that shocking truth which is contained in my book, The Real Jesus, and also in a brochure entitled, Satan's Greatest Deception, that the Jesus Christ of this world is Satan the devil. That is a shocking statement to make that the Jesus Christ, who, who lives only as a figment of the imagination of literally hundreds of millions of so-called Christians, the picture that they would draw if you gave them a pad and a pencil and said, everybody try to sketch a picture of Jesus, that is Satan the devil. The length of time in the tomb, the method by which he died, why he died, when he was born, whether or not he even lived what he taught his disciples. Everything about that personage in the Bible that is called Jesus Christ of Nazareth has been completely perverted by the Roman Catholic Church and all of her harlot daughters. The symbolism of this time, and right now today it is Sunday, and millions of people this morning as we were first blinking and wondering about that cup of coffee, we're out all over this United States in the Rose Bowl and big outdoor pavilions and big football stadiums and big churches at an Ishtar, Easter, Sunday morning sunrise service, utterly condemned by the word of God in the book of Ezekiel where he progressively marched through greater and greater pagan abominations. And finally, after showing women who were weeping for Tamas and cooking hot cross buns, he said, I'll show you an even greater abomination. And there were 25 men with their backs toward the temple of God who were kneeling, worshiping the sun as it rose in the east. Now, it's a totally different story to go back through history and to see how, in that lost century, from the close of the first century A.D. to the dawn of the third century A.D., and during the entirety of the second century, that it it's like an iron curtain that dropped over all of history, and very little is known about that era of God's church. Very, very few writers, some of those that came along, are dealt with in the anti-Nicene fathers... Names like Arnobius and Eusebius and Justin Martyr and Polycarp and so on. And I had the complete volumes of all of the so called Anti Nicene, meaning pre Council of Nicaea, uh, church fathers, quote unquote, uh, which is a term that I don't really choose to use myself. But there is a paucity of information during that period of time, and I won't take a great deal of time on that because that is for history and for other articles and other seminars, perhaps, to actually show how the perverted church that emerges in the third century A.D. bears no remote semblance to the church that Jesus founded. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, if you look into all of the scriptures in the extrapolation from those scriptures back into his boyhood and his youth, the understanding that we can glean from it, as I've put in many chapters of the real Jesus and novelized in a book called Peter's Story, was perhaps around five-seven, he probably was rusty-haired with a neatly trimmed full beard, his hair was modishly short just the way all of the statuary of Jews, Greeks, Hellenists alike during that period of time wore their hair like what used to be called an Italian cut, perhaps slightly fuller than mine, but not much, just about the same. It wasn't a butch, it wasn't shaved up the sides, neither was it a hippie, long hair style. There are a great number of scriptures that bear reference to his lineage and say that he was in the exact similitude of Almighty God, that he was human, It gives the exact method of his birth. Everything is there that would lead us to understand that he was a Jew, that he couldn't have been picked out of a crowd of Jewish people who actually oftentimes are blonde, get ready for a shock, blonde and blue-eyed, that's right, because many people who talk about a Jew today are talking about a Levite or a Simeonite, and they don't know the difference. But there were blonde, blue-eyed, fair-haired, rusty-haired, red-headed Jews. David was a redhead. It's very clear from the meaning of the Scripture, ready, that he was red-headed and freckle-faced. And because of the fact that Jesus Christ came from the seed of David, there is some reason to believe that perhaps he bore a resemblance to that family. But we can leave that for God to reveal at the time of the second coming of Christ. That is not necessarily important to our subject today. The greatest sign of our acceptance of Jesus Christ is not only our understanding of why he died and the manner of his death, but it has to do with the entire story of his life and his lonely sacrifice, the kind of a man he was, his message, what he taught. And if you are going to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood in the symbols during these days of unleavened bread, when you're eating a little unleavened wafer in here at the counter every day, And you are thinking, hopefully, from time to time, of the lesson that we're actually to be imbibing and partaking of Christ himself. The only way you can get to know someone is to glean every last vestige of information you can about him. Try to even understand how he thought. Try to get inside the workings of his mind, the way he reacted to given situations. I would strongly urge that people reread the Gospels every year or two or three, And perhaps even more often than that, just turn to certain chapters, like commencing after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 8, 9, and 10, filled with many, many examples of healings, encounters with demons, and things that happen in his life, and just sit there for casual reading. We oftentimes do not do that. Well, Jesus shed his blood. The world doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily all believe that. Some do, and some like to fantasize that he died of a broken heart, and when he died, on that Wednesday afternoon, and the Passover booklet has a step-by-step chronology of that which leans rather heavily on Bullinger's Companion Bible and the appendices that have to do with the crucifixion week, which is the most probably thorough source that I know of, where if you want to really understand it, you can read through all of those, and you will see the events almost on an hour-by-hour basis from the 6th of Abib right on through, or Nisan, to the 14th of Nisan, the entire pre crucifixion, that's the term they use, or impaling is a better word, but being affixed to a stake or a pail, uh, that pre-crucifixion week. Now, when Jesus Christ was resurrected, and you can read in the Catholic Encyclopedia the deliberate perversion and the twisting of the Scriptures which talk about, "...as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, while it was yet dark, came Mary and the other Mary, Mary Magdalene, to the sepulcher and were astounded because the stone was already rolled away and the keepers lay there as dead men and the angelic creatures said to them, He is not here, he is risen, past tense. While it was yet dark, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, the cocks were perhaps just beginning to start to crow in that pre-dawn blackness. They say it's always darkest just before the dawn. The Catholic Encyclopedia calls that sunrise. The Bible does it. And it says he must have risen at about that moment, as they were within a few feet away from the tomb or a few hundred yards away from it. And they twisted all around to make it into a Sunday morning resurrection. The appearances following the resurrection, of which there were many and some, we'll take time to go through a little bit. The first is Mark 16, verses 9 and 10. The appearance to the women, primarily Mary Magdalene, is singled out there. Mark 16, 9 and 10. The next one is Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10, the other women to whom he appeared. Then Mark 16, 12 and 13, that entire chapter, of course, and also a parallel in Luke 24, 13 to 32. That's the women who were walking along the road to the little village of Emmaus. Luke 24, 32, he appeared to Peter the very same day. Mark 16, verse 14 and Luke 24:36 are parallels, together with John 20 and verse 19. He appeared to the eleven that night. John 20, verses 26 through 31, is a week later at Galilee. I'm sorry, it wasn't Galilee yet, but to the eleven, one week later. And this time, Thomas was there, and that's the account of doubting Thomas. You've all read it time and again. John 20, 26 to 31, is the eleven disciples... Judas was dead, of course, and Matthias had not yet been called, and Thomas. Then John the twenty-first chapter enumerates his appearance to the seven up in Galilee, sometime later, seven of them. Matthew twenty eight, sixteen to twenty. Some authorities, including Kiddo, say that though he appeared to the eleven at that time, they think possibly the five hundred other brethren might have been present at that time. I'm not so sure of that, but That's what some authorities say because of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. And this took place in Galilee. I'm going to turn to Matthew 28, the next reference, 28 and verse 9, and we'll read through this quickly because, again, we're now in the internal biblical evidence. Now it's for people to argue whether or not the Bible is accurate, whether or not these are the words that were designed and put in the canon of the New Testament by God's authorization or whether merely human records. Verse 9, he had told them earlier to go and tell his disciples, and they went, and there's a little interesting uh, quirk here on the pronoun, you've got to be careful, you won't understand who it's talking about. As they, the ones Jesus had said, go to tell my disciples, went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, not the people he sent, he just got through talking to them. He met his disciples, saying, all hail. Hello, everybody. And they came, that's his disciples, and held him by the feet and worshipped him. They recognized him. They got on the ground, probably one by one. It would be very difficult for eleven people to gather up around and hold one man by the feet. So I think you can, by using a little bit of just rational thought here, imagine the scene. Was there a word spoken, or was this a silent occasion? Well, obviously, they were talking. And I imagine it was quite emotional, wouldn't you? You don't see a human being with whom you had lived all these years, who had called you, who you had expected would be a neo-revolutionary to overthrow the Roman government, and kept talking in strange terms about being the Son of God. And then you see him not once but several times walking through a stone wall, And he says, go to Galilee and I'll meet you there. You've already had the occasion of several different appearances that have been startling. You were there when you saw John convicted and convinced at last when he fell down and said, my Lord and my God, when he put his hand in the wound. You've experienced all of that. Now you're up in Galilee about 90 miles in some days or a week or two later, and he appears before you. I imagine one by one in whatever order was common to them that they came to Jesus Christ and said something to him, and he probably patted them on the shoulder and said something to them. And they worshipped him. They loved him. They adored him. They expressed themselves to him, and they grabbed his feet, and probably kissed his feet or whatever. But they were in abject worship. And Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid. Remember yesterday, the archangel said to Daniel, Be not afraid. These men were trembling. They were in a state of shock, of awe, and of guilt. Peter could still remember having cursed and denied him. John could still remember, I don't believe a word of it. And every one of them, and we'll come to that a later, could remember, having said, it can't be, it's impossible, there's no way I'll ever believe it. Be not afraid. Go and tell my brethren. Interesting language, isn't it? Go and tell my brethren. Who's that? All of the disciples are there. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia says that's some of the other disciples. That's probably some of the 120. But the actual word in the Greek language is the same word that is always used for somebody's sibling, somebody's blood brother. And in Bullinger's and other sources as well, it lists every scripture where the mother and the brothers or sisters were trying to get to Jesus Christ or his relationship with them at Cana of Galilee, how Mary was obviously very prominent in that festival. It may have been one of Jesus' sisters who was being married, and that the brothers were probably there and beheld the miracle of changing water into wine at the time when they ridiculed him prior to the final Feast of Tabernacles and said, Go on down to Jerusalem and show what great mighty works you can do there. And he said, Your time is always here, but my time is not yet. Go ye down to the Feast, and I'll show up later. And then he took the disciples and went through Samaria when he had to rebuke Peter, if you recall, because Peter wanted to call down fire upon the innkeeper when he had no place to stay. Well, that was his brothers, Joseph, James, Simon, and Judas, who were ridiculing their own brother and making fun of him. Now, what he's really saying here, you go and tell Joseph, James, Simon, and Judas. Tell my kinsmen, my half-brothers, if you would, the sons of Joseph and Mary, that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now, we'll skip on down to verse 11. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. How many times did he appear to them? Several What had been the time duration? Perhaps some hours. There was time for instruction, time for encouragement, time for him to witness to them, time for him to convict doubting Thomas, time for him to allow each in his own order to hold him by the feet. Many occurrences, many appearances, remember, get that in your mind. The eleven went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some of whom? Not the eleven. No way. That defies logic. He would appeared to them time and again. He had convinced them beyond any remote shadow of a doubt. We've already read that the eleven actually worshipped him and held him by the feet. Now, why, when he said, go to Galilee, should some of the disciples doubt? Well, now, who was there? Jesus said, go tell my brethren. Who was with the disciples at this time? His brethren. Who doubted? His brethren, Joseph, James, Simon, and Jude. They doubted. Some say, some of the authorities that like to deal with these words, that perhaps this included the five hundred brethren. I doubt that, the five hundred members of the early fledgling church. I'm not certain of that. I think that's another appearance of Christ that is actually unrecorded by the four gospel writers and that Paul refers to, because Paul had his own experience we can talk about in a few moments. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 and 8. The apostle Paul, of course, has continually defended his apostleship, and he says that he was declaring the gospel, and he delivered how that Christ died for our sins. Verse 3, according to the Scriptures, he was buried and rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas. That's the way that is pronounced, not C, the little tilde or whatever it is on the bottom of the sea gives it the hard K sound. And that merely is the Greek for rock or pebble or stone. It's the equivalent of Petros. Then of the twelve, now he's including Matthias. So remember that on the first chapter of the book of Acts, who we'll get to in a moment, there was another great appearance, the final one. After that, ah, then here's the chronology. The Apostle Paul acknowledges that it was after the Twelve, get that, the Twelve, we're not the eleven that we saw grab him by the feet in Jerusalem and later meet him in Galilee. But now Matthias is reckoned as one of the twelve, and the twelve are complete again. And the Bible clearly says, no matter what some of the authorities think about the occasion of five hundred brethren having seen him all at once, that it was some time after that. So it is unrecorded in the Gospels. That's what I think. I think that's accurate. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren, not just 500, but above that number, a round number, maybe between 500 and 600 or more, at once, of whom the greater part remained into this present, they were still living, you could go talk to them, they could tell you about their eyewitness experiences, but some are fallen asleep. After that, and that's unrecorded, he was seen of James never recorded elsewhere in the Bible. We can only go back and say that James may well have been among those who when he first saw his brother, that he knew very, very well, in his divine state, with his wounds, yet able to materialize or dematerialize, who was very God at that time, having been accepted by God the Father in heaven, he still was filled with a certain amount of doubt. Now, get in your mind the fact you're dealing with three people named James in association with Jesus Christ. There is James, the son of uh, Zebedee, the brother of John, James and John, a pair of the disciples. James the brother of John was beheaded, you read in the early chapters of the book of Acts. He was one of those who was one of the early martyrs for the church. There's another James who was the son of a man named Alphaeus, and he's called Little James by writers, or James the Less, or the Lesser. So there were two James in or among the disciples. One was James the son of Alphaeus, the other was James the son of Zebedee. There's a third man named James who wrote the book of James in the Bible, and he is Jesus' half-brother. And this is the man we're dealing with here, because obviously in the Jerusalem conference in the 15th chapter of, of Acts, James was the one to whom all the other apostles deferred He gave his final sentence after Peter's long discourse and after Paul's explanation of what God had done with the Gentiles. James said, Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them from among the Gentiles who return to Christ, and so on, but that we just urge them a few simple things, and you can read it in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. It's obvious that James had a position of respect and of deference, not of primacy, not of making ultimate or final decisions against the majority, but merely one of deference and respect because he was the Lord's half-brother, and by this time obviously deeply converted. Now I've told many, many audiences when I speak in personal appearance campaigns that they have nowhere near the difficulty and the obstacle in front of them to understand God's truth and to come to conviction, conversion, and baptism that I had. As Jesus said, no prophet hath any honor in his own kin or his own country, and among his own kin or his own family. And when we kids were all fifteen or sixteen, we were all alike. We didn't think dad or mom knew very much. And that is human nature. And especially if your father happens to be a preacher who claims he is in a wilderness of Babylonish confusion and is the only human being on the face of the earth, including the little church among whom he preached, who understood the plan of God. It shocks me when I think back to the time when I was seven, eight, and nine that that happened to be a fact, and that only one family understood. That shocks me when I stop to think about it. And that little fledgling church that finally grew to about 36 or so by the time I entered Ambassador College, and finally grew to about 100 in Pasadena, California, and another little church of about 15 down in San Diego, and about 30 or so up in Fresno, California, and how all of that gradually developed to become a church which now still bears that name worldwide, Church of God. But it's fascinating because I rejected my father's religion and my father because the last thing in the world I wanted to believe was that he could be anybody, that he could know what he was talking about. Now, put yourself in the same situation. If you have an older brother, my, my, brother my, my father's brother Dwight had a constant running gun battle with my dad. He never did agree with him all the way on a lot of points, but finally Dwight was converted and baptized and became a member of the church but he was always writing very lengthy treatises and trying to convince my father about this and that and the other thing and arguing with him and you can see the problem here between siblings there's a certain jealousy and Dwight was kind of behind the door and he was left out he had meningitis when he was a child and had certain quirks of personality but he was quite gifted as I think some of his music uh, illustrates some of it is quite good. Some of it I have difficulty singing, but that's like any other composer. Some works are outstanding, and others are not quite up to par. But my uncle Dwight was, was a quite a gifted man. But it was my father's younger brother. He was a twin, and his sister Mary, never believed her brother Herbert had the sense that God gave mules. Uh, just didn't absolutely rejected everything he stood for. His other brother, Russell, didn't have the time of day for him, never believed a word he said. He probably disagreed with him about the time of day on the clock. Never darkened the door of a church, had anything to do with my father and all the other in-laws. His mother became converted and a member of God's church and was until her 96th birthday and on into her 96 and a half year before she died. So in my own family, I have experienced what this must have been like. And I can try to put myself into James' shoes and ask myself, what if it had been my brother Richard David, suddenly coming up with all these strange things and doing things that I couldn't explain, and, and water becoming wine, how would I deal with that? My own brother. So you've got to put yourself in James' mind. And realize the obstacle that it must have been for his brothers. And don't blame them. Don't be too hard on them. They were all, apparently, eventually converted. Judas is the one who wrote the little short letter of Jude in the Bible. We don't really hear anything further about Joseph or Simon, so you could speculate perhaps they never were converted. But it's also interesting, as we will see here, and I have said in my books, and don't one of you ever come up to me and say you've checked your genealogy and you're it, but the brothers of Jesus Christ married, and they had children, and those children had children. So walking the earth today, somewhere, somehow, there are those in whose bloodline remains, you know, the, the, uh, the genes of Joseph and Mary. just happens to be true. Now, that doesn't make them holy. They can probably be train robbers. I don't know what they are, but... But uh, it does happen that uh, that that is a fact, that they did marry, they did have families, and I have no reason to believe that the entire lineage was somehow just obliterated from the face of the earth and that Joseph's progeny and Mary's progeny never lived on. So James had quite an experience. Now notice in verse 7, after that he was seen of James. Now that's all it says, and I take it that that does not mean that James rounded the corner of a building in Jerusalem, and saw a retreating figure and said, Oh, I think that's him. I think we all understand this means an apparition. Now, an apparition is not a ghostly something. It is merely an appearance, but it has spiritual connotation. I think he appeared to James, and I think that that means they had a long talk. I think that he explained some things to James. I think James was able to look into his eyes and actually able to touch him if he wanted to, just like Thomas did, because we have a precedent for that in the Bible. So, all of these people, the Apostle Paul is pointing to them as witnesses of what? When Christ commissioned them, Acts the first chapter, he said, You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you received, and wherein you stand, by which you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. You want to put a colon? How that? Okay, here's the gospel in summary. Christ died for our sins according to Matthew 12, 40. And all the other scriptures about the exact moment... The method of his death, the duration of his time in the tomb, and the moment of his resurrection. Over and over again I can point to you scriptures that said he immediately preached Christ in the synagogues. When Saul, destroyer, became Paul, little or small, he immediately preached Christ. He immediately preached that Jesus was the Son of God. When Apollos was converted, he immediately preached Christ unto them, over and over and over again that is a very important point twice paul says he died according to the scriptures and he was raised according to the scriptures very important now he talks about the living eyewitnesses and he said he was seen of james then of all the apostles so even after the appearance to james which may have been a month or two later we don't have any time element here after the appearance of the five hundred brethren at once And I take it one or more of the apostles may have been present. There was a whole congregation there. And for some urgent need, perhaps they were doubting. Perhaps the apostles were losing their grip on a group of people who were to become the cadre of the newly converted people. Perhaps they're part of the very individuals who later on were to become a part of the leadership of the church. But for some reason, Christ determined they need to see me. I need to be there. Just, just use your mind. It's logical, isn't it? There had to be a reason why he appeared to them. And the reason had to be their fear or their doubt. Because his appearance to them did what? It, it supported, it proved, it convicted, it, it removed any last vestige of confusion. Is he really alive? Has he walked out of the tomb? Five hundred brethren at once? So I can immediately say, well, there had to be problems. There had to be a reason why Christ decided to appear to those five hundred brethren. Now he goes on to say, Last of all, he was seen of me also as one begotten out of due time. You read of that in Galatians 1, and a little bit of an inference in the book of Acts, so there's kind of a little gap uh, where Luke the chronologer leaves out the entire three and a half or so years that the Apostle Paul spent between the Arabian desert and going back up to Damascus. Prior to the time he went down to Jerusalem, And it says he saw two of them, Peter and James. Interesting that he appeared and presented himself before James. There is strong possibility, and again, this is not dogma or doctrine, it's merely inference, that Jesus Christ may have spent enough time with Paul that it was like the equivalent of a college education, up to two and a half years or longer, and had daily talks hours and hours of study and talks. It's just possible. I just throw that out as a possibility because Paul very clearly said that he appeared unto me and he said, have I not seen Christ? And the point is that there is quite a gap in Paul's life, but Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He said, I cast my voice, so I gave my lot. Strong inference that this man who was a scholar, who was brought up under the feet of Gamaliel, who was filled with such murderous hatred against the church that he literally was making a shambles of it destroying entire local congregations and villages hailing men women and children into prison causing them to blaspheme and curse the name of god on the torture rack so that every chapter of paul's life every time as he shows in second corinthians the 11th and 12th chapter that he was floating out at sea in a shipwreck or he was feeling the lash on his back as the Jews were hitting him with a cat-o'-nine-tails, or he was being afflicted or persecuted, or as he said, wandering about naked and without, or freezing and thinking he was going to die, or being on one case beaten to death and left, beaten nearly to death and left for dead in a coma, where his brethren came out and washed him and cleaned him up and found him in a comatose state and took him back into the city and took care of him. I imagine every time the lash bit into his flesh, he was saying, Yes, Lord, I deserve it. Because the Apostle Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am. I don't know that there are any murderers here. There may be one person or two in this room who at one time or another has taken a human life. I don't know how you feel about that. We get letters all the time in our prayer breakfast from people on death row, from people in prison, from people who desperately want our prayers, from people who have been murderers of their own parents. I don't know how you feel about that. But I think I know how Christ feels about it, if and when a human being, even guilty of murder, because we human beings like to think of certain sins and crimes as being worse than others, can, in fact, repent. Why did Jesus Christ seemingly delay the ministry of the Apostle Paul so long? He had an immediate burst of energy after he was blinded. By the way, uh, important. Did he see Christ? on the road to Damascus. No. He was blind. Right? Read it. He was blind. No, he did not see Christ then. He heard a voice. And that voice identified itself saying, I am Yahshua. I am Yeshu. I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Other manuscripts add a little statement that perhaps is not in there. It's hard for you to, you know, to... uh, uh, kick against the pricks of your conscience, and so on. I think that that is not necessarily an authorized part of the early canon, and you can sort that out for yourself. But there is some reason to believe it is not in most of the, main, of the oldest manuscripts. But the fact that a voice appeared uh, to his ears, that he heard the voice, but he saw no one, he was absolutely blind, then when it says he saw Christ, we understand that it had to be at some time later. Last of all, he was seen of me as one begotten out of due season, and I'll leave that scripture there where it is. If you want to look at the 182nd appendix, Bullinger's 182nd appendix, there is a fascinating study proving the brethren are Mary's children, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. First Corinthians 9.5, right quickly, just as a little proof text here before we get into the other notes that we have. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5, Paul again, am I not an apostle in verse 1, am I not free, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? In verse 5, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, and that word is used, you see in the margin, for a wife, a sister for a wife, or a sister as a wife, meaning a sister spiritually in the church as a wife physically in the flesh, as well as other apostles plural, It's so interesting to look at the little minuet, the funny little dance that the Catholic Encyclopedia does around this verse. But it is very clear in the original, and it's very clear in all of the Expositors Greek New Testament, the Diaglott, there's Lexicon, it doesn't matter what you go to. This is accurate. It is the plural, it is other apostles, and as the brethren plural. It must mean at least James and Jude, who wrote a book in the Bible. It may include them all. Of the Lord. So, what is that telling us? They were married. They were married. All the apostles, probably. There may have been one or two of them who didn't find a wife, but I take it the majority of the apostles were married, and they were not celibate, and they were not priests. And keep us, or Peter. And we read of how back in the early days, I think it's about the 8th chapter of Matthew, that they came into Peter's house and found his wife's mother ill. And Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So there is ample evidence that Peter was married. I think that by the time Peter was traveling around with Jesus Christ, he probably had young sons of 8 or 9 or 10 or 11. Probably had several of them. They were family men. Many of them were married even prior to to their apostleship. Some of them may have delayed and gotten married later, but the point is, the Bible very clearly says they were married, and they were traveling in the work. Acts 1 is the final appearance, we'll turn to that right quickly. This is again, we're citing now internal evidence from the Bible itself about the resurrection of Christ. Note that Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus love of God, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. And this is written perhaps about 62 A.D. After that, he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. If my father should walk in this room right now, would I recognize him? You all would. He walked up here to me in in his inimitable fashion, in the suit that he loved to wear, and said, Ted, I've come back from the dead, and I don't want you to doubt because this is really me. I'd say, yes, sir. And I would know it was him. I would have not the faintest doubt if my mom were to walk in in here right now, Walk up to me and say, I've been resurrected. Do you think I would doubt that? No way. I would recognize her. Now, they they recognized Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They accepted it as the most mind-boggling, profound truth of which anyone could ever become aware. It says, infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, a month and 10 days, a long period of time, a protracted period of time and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, because now he could begin to open their minds, because now they were receptive. Now they understood the time element. Now they understood so much that it had just gone by them in one ear and out the other when they were disciples and puzzled by the strange things that he said. But now it was lodging in there. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. So they returned to Jerusalem after the draught of fishes, They returned to Jerusalem after the occasion of him appearing to the brethren, including James and the others, up at the Sea of Galilee. They traveled up and down the length and breadth of the country, and he appeared to them over a period of forty days. And then he said, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That is what they had asked at the Last Supper, and they'd been arguing at the moment of his heaviness about who should have the choice position at his right hand in his kingdom, which they thought he was going to set up right then and there, perhaps at the season of the days of unleavened bread. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power, that is, not just enlightenment, but also authority and the energizing power which is unique to Almighty God and is spiritual in nature and does not come from the human psyche, does not come from human emotion, from mere human zeal, from human belief or human conviction. It is literally an additive that is spiritual in nature and comes from Almighty God that changes, has the power to change the nature of the man. Only by this can you understand a human being, such as those of whom you can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs and elsewhere, even in, the, in many of the commentaries that endured the martyrdom during the days of the sack and the pillage of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., or those who were literally skinned alive slowly and absolutely refused to profane the name of Christ and so died in agony. You do not understand that merely at a human level. You shall receive power, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And clouds are generally anywhere from 1,500 feet, 2,000, 5,000, whatever it might have been. By 5,000 feet, he probably would have been invisible, so I take it the clouds were a little lower. But literally, they watched him rise and be assumed into the clouds. And they're standing there gazing when, like a thunderous, booming voice, two men stood by them in white apparel. They look at these blazing people standing there in shimmering white. And they say to them, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. All right, there are many, many more through all of the gospel accounts. There are many, many more references here and there. But these are the most important and the ones that I gave you of internal biblical evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Now, those who don't believe in the Bible... Porphyry, for example, and many others have tried to debunk the resurrection. There have been many, many books which have said said that Jesus Christ was not a a human being at all, but a mushroom, and that these people were actually cultists who liked to shave them, burn them, and get high on it, and went around and founded a religion, a cult called the Christian religion. there is the book written by a British author many years ago who sued the church because of an article we wrote in the Plain Truth magazine debunking his ridiculous theory that Jesus was actually in a coma and the disciples gave him some kind of an hallucinogen or something to put him in a profound sleep, came back and stole his body away. And there are all kinds of lies that have been perpetrated. Now, there's an entire race of people who have perpetrated those lies. The entire Jewish race has been taught. The rottenest, filthiest jokes, the bloodiest, most blasphemous statements about Jesus Christ that you can begin to imagine. Have any of you in this room ever heard or overheard a Jew talking to another one about Christ? I have. I've heard it on the golf course. I've heard people making jokes that make you want to turn around and, and wonder why the earth doesn't open up like Cora, and just swallow them right then and there. There has to be the resupporting in the minds of every new generation of Jewish people how it is they set aside all of history and the entire development of the Christian church and everything that goes under the guise of Christianity year after year after year. When a little Jewish baby girl or boy gets to be two or three or four, they begin to ask questions, you know, about those early preschool years, they begin to learn about this person, Jesus. And they're taught by their parents and resupported in all of the lies about the resurrection. Now the lies started immediately. The first lies were perpetrated deliberately by the Sanhedrin who gave money to suborn people to go out and say that his disciples stole away the body. If you read that in the Bible, right? So the lies began instantly. Now we're going to deal with logic. We're only going to deal with logic. First point of logic. If his enemies stole his body, if his enemies stole his body, enemies plural, let's say if the members of the Sanhedrin stole his body, what would they have done with it? Well, you all know from logic, they would have probably preserved it as best they could and put it under some kind of a permanent display, but as long as they could keep that body in any semblance of recognition, they would have displayed it. And they would have actually ordered, under pain of death, practically all the population of the nation to file by and look at it. They'd have grabbed citizens by the nap of their neck and they'd have said, look, that's him, right? Is that logic? That's logic. Don't ever forget that. That's the point of logic. Romans, they had every reason to believe a massive insurrection was about to uh, crop up. They'd put down Thutis. They'd put down Barabbas. He'd been captured, of course. And even though he apparently learned his lesson, they'd let him go. But there were others who claimed to be a messiah and went galloping across the countryside with 400 people here and there and were giving the Romans a lot of fits. And so it was to the Romans' best interest to do the very same thing the Jews would have done. Logic. If the Roman keepers had stolen away that body, they probably would have taken it to Rome, but first of all, they would have displayed it. Second point of logic, if his disciples stole the body, what would they have done? Well, would one of them have later on died for what he knew to be a conspiratorial lie? If the disciples stole the body, there never would have been a Christian church, would there? Because his resurrection was not a later invention of a group of people to bolster some kind of a faith. It was the cause of their faith. It was the beginning of their faith. Right? Logic. If members of his family had stolen the body, we've already been all the way through James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude about the appearances to James, and we read about James' life and the fact that he became an apostle in Jerusalem. Could the family have been in collusion to perpetrate this myth? Then why did they die? Are men martyrs for that which they know to be a lie? Logic. If his friends, other people, Joseph of Arimathea, stole the body, could that have been true? Same point of logic applies. Absolutely not. Because those people all became members of God's true church. There is strong evidence that Joseph of Arimathea may have actually gone to England and founded a sort of a small training center for disciples there at Glastonbury. And it has been so written in British history. And there's strong inference that Joseph of Arimathea was actually in Great Britain. So he became a disciple, apparently. Third point of logic, was it merely an hallucination? Well, we've been through all the internal evidence, and each one of these points of logic, by the way, that I'm presenting to you is the subject of many books. Not just one, but many. I mean, there are books all over the shelves and all kinds of presuppositions in some of the so called higher criticism that try to take apart the uh, resurrection of Christ and make it into a fantasy and a fallacy instead of an historical fact. Was it an hallucination? a vision, a dream. What is the first point of logic on that? Remember, the disciples were unwilling to believe it, right? As I said just uh, yesterday, uh, people who don't believe in UFOs generally don't see them. (laughs) Uh, People who are absolutely have their minds made up, people who who don't want to believe something are not prone to going out and having some hallucination to see it. It's only people who deeply desire something, people who have an out-of-the-body experience People that see the chariot swinging low, people that see their mother standing up in heaven as they're about to die, and then they come out from under the ether or whatever and say, wow, I saw a vision of heaven. These are people who believe in it, who want it, who have heard about it, who have been taught it so long, who desperately desire it, that their mind just conceives it. Like the deer hunter, and there are documented articles on this, tragically who is so lustful after that big buck, who so badly wants to kill a deer that he sees a hunter wearing fatigues and camo and raises a rifle up and blows him away and walks up there with his knife out and wonders where the horns went. And it's actually documented. He hallucinated and actually saw a creature walking through the woods and his mind told him that's a deer. Believe it. Psychologists can tell you it is so when people want to see something badly enough they can see it the disciples didn't want to see it they didn't believe it they were unwilling witnesses now b to that he showed himself to different groups of different composition at different times in different places another point on one occasion we read that up to five hundred people at once and five hundred people at once who have no remote Desire to expect it. Two points of logic there. Dealt with one already. Probably there was a reason for Christ's appearance to support them because there was doubt. There was a problem here. Probably they weren't believing the leadership. They were unbelieving when Peter was telling them or one of the apostles telling them what he had seen. And so to support what the apostle was preaching, Christ simply materialized and said, He's telling you the truth. I really am alive. That's about the best proof you could imagine. They were unwilling. I would would presume, and I think it is logical, that the 500 before, before whom he appeared were also unwilling witnesses. They were not there hallucinating, trying to pray up a vision of Jesus, saying, oh, I hope we can see him. That is not logical. The opposite is logical. Finally, as in the case of doubting Thomas, and many of his own brethren, and the apostles, they did not believe until they didn't have any other recourse. They didn't believe until they had to believe. So these are points of logic. Now the fourth, he was seen at least ten times. Ten separate occasions, I gave you all those scriptures. At least that number of times, and probably many more. He was not confined to the streets of Jerusalem, was he? Because he appeared at the Sea of Galilee and performed a miracle of the fishes, performed a miracle of having a fire burning and a fish that obviously had not caught, but simply there it was, when Peter flung himself headlong into the water and flashed ashore and hauled himself out on the bank and said, it is him. He may have appeared to Paul, not necessarily in Damascus, but down in Arabia. Quite a number of miles away, several hundred. I wonder if he appeared to anybody else anywhere else. Now, there are those who like to claim that he came to the United States and appeared to people over here. I don't want to go that far. I think that when the canon was closed with the book of Acts and his ascension, that his appearances were very, very brief and very limited after that period of time. And I don't want to say that. The Mormons have some claim to be in God's true church because of the Sabbath, the holy days, God's laws. You can talk about every one of their doctrines having to do with baptism for the dead and on and on and on, which, of course, and even their name, which is not the name of the church of God. But he had been seen at least ten times. There is no record of how long or how often he was seen by his brother James or how long or how often he was seen by the apostle Paul and you will look at that as I said in Galatians the first chapter next point of logic was Christ really not dead at all but in a faint or a coma all the authorities agree that he was beaten within an inch of his life so if they claim well he really didn't die of a spear wound but his body was merely comatose and they couldn't detect a pulse and they went ahead and buried him by mistake how would he have had the strength to roll away a gigantic stone That big, strong, muscled Roman soldiers had wrestled into position and then driven with a huge mallet a wedge shaped chalk of stone into place. Let me tell you how that was done. I've been there. You've seen the the opening to the garden tomb at Golgotha. Some of you may have visited it. There's a trough right in front of it, and it's about yea wide, and it's carved out of solid stone, and it runs slightly uphill. They would have taken, which they did, a huge circular stone which fit exactly in that trough, and it was placed up above and then wedged tightly and, of course, with some sort of a support against it so it could not get loose. Then that wedge of stone narrowed as it got to the door ever so slightly. It was very meticulously engineered so that as the weight of that huge slab of stone wedged down into that stone trough, which was fairly deep, it would actually just crush and pulverize some of the stone on each side and so virtually cement itself in place. When Christ's body was put in that tomb, that stone was rolled in that trough. It wasn't like a big round boulder they rolled up against an aperture in a mountain at all. Very cleverly engineered, and I've seen the trough. The stone has long since been broken up and gone, but I've been inside the garden tomb and even did a radio program from inside that tomb right where Christ's body lay. So how would a man, then, who had nearly bled to death, who had undergone that entire two days or so without sleep, one entire night of persecution, beating the thorns, the cat and 9 tails the entire thing, have the strength to remove that stone and get out? Point of logic. Sixth, how did he appear and disappear through locked doors and stone walls? Another point of logic. Seventh, it's advanced that the records have been tampered with. But all that we have read here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, tampered records, a later invention. Interesting, though, isn't it, that the very first records ever written of this event, 41, 51, 2, 3, 4, 5, 24 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ, the very first known documents to become a part of the New Testament canon were written first of all by Matthew and secondly by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica first Thessalonians both are dated at about 55 or so AD all the documentation came later interestingly enough what we read here about the ascension of Christ was not written until 62 AD 31 years after the ascension of Christ. Now, in order to write all of this and then later on to come back and to tamper with those records, you've got to gainsay and do away with all of the profane history of the persecutions of the Jews. The great persecution by Herod, the absolute scattering and fright and fear from Jerusalem of those people which spread them all over the known world and caused them to evangelize and to get out of Jerusalem, the killing of James the brother of John that very first Passover following the very next year following Christ's ascension you've got to do away with every bit of that history and say that they then came along and tampered with these records and that of course resulted in the creation of the New Testament church or the Christian religion but the Christian religion was going in a a tremendous burst of energy and there were churches being raised up all over the eastern Mediterranean world long before one single scrap of vellum or papyrus or any other material was used to write down the recollections of these men. So you see, that is not logical. Now these are merely points of logic. It was not a later addition, it was a prior cause of their faith. There are a few points we might make as we go along. Proof one, Jesus died on the Passover. The fourteenth of Nisan, which was originally called in the twelfth chapter of the book of Exodus, when God said, This month shall be unto thee the beginning of months. It was called Abib, which means green ears. Remember that, because that's an important point. Some people are calendar buffs. Some people are secret symbol buffs. Some people are uh, conspiracy, uh, conspiracy buffs. Uh, There are those who believe that if we could get into the etymology and we could just hold our bodies in a certain way and make the correct sign with our body, we can be holy. Others think if we pronounce a name just right, like Jehovah or Yahshua, that it's better than saying Jesus and that that will be efficacious in God's sight others believe if we just know the exact instant according to the correct calendar. And Hillel was a jerk and didn't know what he was doing and didn't have any authorization whatsoever to change and tamper the calendar, because the calendar is some sort of even a super-divine mechanism which is mathematically precise and which is actually attuned to the movements of all the heavenly bodies and cannot be tampered with or messed around with by any human being when God shows up to the Israelites in Egypt who are in paganism and says to them this month shall be unto you nevertheless to Egypt it is not to this day to the Arabs who date the Hijra or the pilgrimage of Muhammad and talk about post hijra the Jews have a totally different calendar from the pagans the Julian calendar was in use not the Gregorian at the time of Christ by the Romans was changed much later. The chronologers have not gotten busy to even set the dates. And, of course, many people are kind of puzzled when I say Christ was born 4 B.C. They say, that can't be. How, how, how can Christ have been born before Christ? Well, they don't understand that the calendar was not even set in motion until centuries and centuries later that we deal with today when they went back and made a lot of logical you know, mistakes when you look at it. And that even Usher's chronology, one of the most famous of all the chronologers that is relied upon by many of the Bible interpreters and some of his dates are even in the King James Bible in the margin, is off. And sometimes by several years, and at least in, in some cases, for example, one glaring error, he forgot to allow one year for the duration of the flood. In his simple reckonings of the genealogies of some of the patriarchs in Noah's period of time, he forgot to allow one year for the duration of the flood. And some people don't know how to count time either, going back and forth from B.C. to A.D. So, let me just tell you this. The calendar is not absolute. It is what? It is seasonal. And seasons vary. And from one cycle to another through history of drought or lean or wet years, the priest would go out and determine what was the month of green ears, whether or not it was an early or a late spring the solar lunar calendar is totally imperfect the moon does not go around this earth exactly in thirty days and so many hours and so many parts of seconds the way the Jews reckon a day every every month it is imperfect the tilt of the earth or the wobble of the earth the journey of the earth with its moon around the Sun once a year and so on is imperfect it is imprecise God gave the responsibility to the Jewish race to the Jews are given the oracles of God. So this statement we make here that we come to should not be intimidating at all. Jesus died on the Passover, the 14th of Nisan. So those are infallible proofs about the fact that our Jesus Christ is alive. As one scripture says in the Bible, Blessed are you, said Jesus to his disciples, who have seen and believe. Blessed are those who, having not seen, believe." I think to you people, Jesus Christ does not need to stroll in this door right now and tell me to sit down and stand here and prove to you that He is alive. You know He is alive. And I think that's comforting. As I said yesterday, it is a very reassuring thing to go to the records, to go to the history books, and even though you don't really doubt, it is so exciting to re-support, to reaffirm, and to prove and to substantiate from all sorts of sources what you believe to be true in the Word of God. I don't think a person in this room will ever be able to say he doesn't really believe in the resurrection.